and welcome to the only podcast that's all about Fort Meade, our community, and life in the military. I'm your host, Joe Nieves. And I'm your co-host, Sherry Kuyper, and you're listening to Fort Meade Declassified. As of April 21st, Fort Meade is at Health Protection Condition Charlie. Here are some of the newest changes. The biggest change made recently is that face masks are required in all public buildings. If you are heading out the door, be sure to have a mask with you. Can't sew? Don't worry. We have the instructions on the Fort Meade Facebook page with a few ways to make them out of old shirts or bandanas. Neck gaiters pulled up over the mouth and nose also work. Social distancing. People are still congregating in the parks and in the neighborhoods. We know this is hard, but please stop with the groups. Please social distance. There's a new program called the Agent Shopping Service from Army Community Service. Volunteers will help shop for you so you can help maintain social distancing. For more information on how you can volunteer, call 301-677-5590 or 6658. Or you can email them at agentshoppingprogram at gmail.com. Follow Fort Meade on Facebook to get the latest information and to participate in Garrison Commander Colonel Eric Sprague's regular COVID-19 Facebook town halls. For more information on the COVID-19 situation at Fort Meade, head to our website, home.army.mil forward slash Meade, and click on the COVID-19 banner at the top of the page. This episode was originally intended to air in March as part of Women's History Month. The original episode was to include our interview with Vice Admiral Norton, followed by a women's leadership panel with three of the top women at DISA. In an effort to provide you with updates on COVID-19, we've broken up the episode. Part one of the Vice Admiral Norton interview is now on iTunes. So here is part two with my co-host, Sherry, and the women's leadership panel. We hope you enjoy. So this is a first for Fort Meade Declassified. Today, we are going to do a women's leadership panel. And what we're going to do is we are talking with three incredible women who are at the upper levels of leadership at one of the biggest tenant partners we have here on Fort Meade, and that is the Defense Information Systems Agency, otherwise known as DISA. We've already talked to Vice Admiral Norton, who is the director of DISA, and joining us for this panel today are two other incredible women, Laura Radney, the chief of staff for DISA, and Dr. Serena Chan, the director of cyber development for DISA. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, thank for, you having for having us. us. Thank you, Sherry. I want to start off, I've read all of your backgrounds, and I think it's amazing and incredible how different they are. So when people are listening, and if there's any kids out there listening, you can come from virtually any type of background and end up being an amazing woman in leadership. So we've already talked to Vice Admiral, and we know that she comes from small town Portland, Oregon, and wanted to be a doctor and found the Navy and changed her path. Now, Ms. Ms. Rodney, I see that you, you started out as a local Fox affiliate uh, promotion manager and program manager. How did you end up here? <laughs> well, that's an um, interesting story. I guess, you know, as I was working at the Fox affiliate, um, I the Air Force recruiter would come in all the time and ask me to play his um, promotions, you know, and the videotapes 
on the air, and I would say, sure. I just love the commercials that the Air Force played, and he was always so nice, and we got to talking one day, and he said, how would you like to do the job you're doing now in the Air Force? I said, you don't have this kind of job, and he said, yes, I do, and he said, we have a broadcast journalist um, job in the Air Force, and I got to thinking about it, and the more I thought about it, I said, wait a minute, I could do this job and go all over the world. And I joined the Air Force, and uh, my path took me all over the world, and I ended up here at Fort Meade, and that's um, how I ended up here and got out of the Air Force and began my career in federal government. Now, as the chief of staff for DISA, what does that entail? What, what does your day look like? <laughs> I know it's a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) I would say every day is different. Um, You know, I just, I have a calendar full of meetings, um, (laughs) and there are lots of emails and lots of phone calls and lots of different discussions and pop-ins, but uh, every day there's a new challenge. It's kind of like operations central, not in like an operations floor that you would see, you know, even though we are an IT agency, but it's more in an administrative way. Um, We handle a lot of policies, procedures, um, issuances, uh, tasks that come into the agency, but also a lot of probably the most important part of our job is communicating with our workforce. And we have a worldwide workforce of about 16,000 people if we include our contractors. So we've got military, civilian, and contractors around the world. And communicating with them what's going on um, is a big challenge. You know, everybody's in a different time zone, and we want to make sure everybody knows what's going on. So um, we put a lot of effort into doing that, you know, getting the director's message out um, and sharing what we're doing as an agency. So, you know, it doesn't matter what, what's going on. We put a lot of effort and time into doing that. So those two jobs probably keep me busy almost every day. Dr. Chan, so reading through your bio, you have come to DISA by uh, way of MIT. Mm-hmm. How, give us a little bit of background on how you ended up here. What brought you to federal government? What brought you to DISA? Did you just wake up one day and say, that looks like a really awesome building to work in? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I come from a very academic background, as you can tell. So I've uh, started my career working at a lot of federally funded research and development centers. Um, I was always interested in working on... um, complex uh, national security problems. So anything that was a technical and a policy challenge, um, working with good people and contributing to a mission uh, was what I was looking to do. And so at uh, some point in my career, I was interested in providing more impact in my work. And so I was looking for something in the federal government. What does it mean to be the Director of Cyber Development at DISA? Uh, so in my position, I'm responsible for leading the development and acquisition of cybersecurity and network operation solutions from the enterprise down to the endpoint. So these kind of services include cyber situational awareness capabilities and also developing solutions for identity management and zero trust. Just looking a little bit now, talking about leadership, because we really want to focus on leadership and how, how you ladies got here. 
We'll start with the Vice Admiral. What are some of the challenges that you have faced in your career in becoming a leader? Well, in the Navy and, and in the service in general and uh, across the military, uh, you get the opportunity to be a leader at a very young age. Uh, as you know, a 22-year-old uh, ensign in the Navy, fresh out of Officer Candidate School, I got to be a division officer and lead sailors, and uh, and that's the the kind of opportunity that most young people don't get in the civilian world. And so every one of those steps, you have to be uh, recognizing how much influence you have over all other people that work for you, how much responsibility you have for the care of those people, the development of those people, turning them into the leader that you want to be in the future. Uh, that's just a wonderful opportunity. The challenge is that um, that it's complex. It is hard. You know, we are we are an incredibly diverse workforce across the Department of Defense, and everybody coming from different backgrounds and different uh, different ways of doing things. And and so you have to learn how to lead a very diverse workforce. Um, I agree with the admiral. I think you know a lot of the challenges you don't recognize, especially when you're very young. I think you, in the beginning, you might put on a certain face thinking, oh, the boss should be this way or the boss should be that way. And then after you gain some experience and, and you begin to learn about yourself, you realize that really you can be who you are, right, and yes. still be the leader. Um, and I've learned that over my career that I don't have to be, you know, act as if I'm the boss or lead in a certain way or develop a style like someone else. What I've learned is that I can be myself as a leader. Um, I can be empathetic. I can, you know, listen to the challenges that people are having. And I can still help people get things done and lead that way. Um, and I didn't know that at the beginning of my career. Um, and so that's something I had to learn over time, and that was the kind of challenge that I faced in the beginning. And I think, too, for leadership for civilians, you know, we forget as a civilian that we are leaders at all levels. And in the civilian world, prior for, to me working in the government, I was never really told I was a leader. I always had managers and bosses, and they were the leaders. And it wasn't until some like significant events happened that people were looking to me for guidance that I realized, like, well, wait, I'm a leader as well. And I think that's a really important thing for young women um, to realize is that you can be 19 and starting out, and maybe you're in the military and you know you're a leader, or maybe you're working a civilian job, and it could be at any job, and you can be uh, self-leadership. You start out there, and then it just kind of builds gradually over the years. And Dr. Chan, what have your challenges been in becoming the leader you are today? Um, personally, I think I get the double whammy of the glass ceiling and the bamboo ceiling. So <laughs> studies have shown that Asian women are least likely to be viewed as managers or leaders. And um, even with my own exceptional educational credentials, um, I don't seem to, I do not feel like I was advancing as fast or as um, high as others in professional managerial jobs. And so for me, I just had to learn to also accept and ask for help to um, 
discover what my leadership style was and to develop skills that would augment my critical thinking kind of focused leadership style. So it was picking up soft skills such as um, building relationships and uh, caring about others, listening, uh, making sure that people feel heard and valued, and then being supported through empathy and understanding. So that type of things to... And also, um, I had to recognize that I had to find the opportunities for myself and also um, figure out how to navigate that. And I think it's interesting that you bring up um, the challenge of being an Asian American and how that, so what's the research behind that that says that it's more challenging to get in those leadership and management roles? Um, I think there's the issues with the model minority myth um, we're academically very successful, but I think when you're out in the business world, it's a, uh, culturally it's different. Um, I think there's a lot that you have to embrace in American kind of values and style um, and how to engage with others. Um, and so it becomes a little bit more cultural and political and how okay. to play in that environment. Well, I think you're doing an excellent job of shattering that myth. So thank you for that. Thank you. One thing that I find very important, and I think that as leaders, you, you ladies are probably going to tell me, oh, you've known this for years, is mentors. I would, I'm just curious, and, and Ms. Rodney, we can start with you this time. Who have your mentors been over the years? Do you have one that, that really stands out? Do you currently have a mentor that you talk to to seek guidance for, for what you're doing? You may find me strange, but I really don't have a mentor. Um, I've never really found someone to mentor me, but I find mentors in moments. So okay. I kind of find that almost everybody I meet could be a mentor in some way. So I can have a conversation with someone and they say something that kind of sparks something in my heart, um, you know, um, that makes me think, wow, that is so important, you know, that speaks to me. Um, and I'm pretty open person, so I, I have, uh, you know, I listen carefully. I try to listen carefully to, so, to what people are telling me. So um, when a person says something and I hear something that's meaningful to me, um, I try to store that information and think about it and later on, that piece of information might help me uh, down the road in my life. So I've used that throughout my career, and it's been helpful for me. Um, so that's kind of how I use mentoring. It's a little different, but a different take. Do you, are you, do you mentor others? I do, yeah. I try to mentor others, and um, I've had multiple people throughout my career that I spend time with and mentor, and I love to do that. Um, and I find that a lot of times people just want to be heard. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And just bounce their ideas off somebody mm -hmm. who's been down the road we want to go down or that we're traveling down ourselves. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Vice Admiral, how about you? Who are your mentors? Well, in my first tour in the Navy, I had an incredible woman who was a chief warrant officer uh, that, was, that really took me under her wing. And uh, she wanted to teach me everything that she knew about telecommunications and about being a woman in the Navy. Uh, she had been a uh, first-class petty officer and then a chief petty officer 
who was one of the first women, the first group of women on ships to serve as crew on ships. And so you can imagine the kinds of barriers that she was breaking down, uh, trying to overcome stereotypes and expectations in the Navy. And she really set the path for every woman today that serves in the Navy on combatant ships. She she could only serve on non-combatant ships because the combat exclusion law had not been repealed yet. Uh, So she taught me so much about how to treat people and how to... Uh, gain the respect that you that you deserve by doing your job well and being a professional and and treating others with respect. And I'm sure those lessons that you learned from her are ones that you're perpetuating to those who serve under you now and who I'm sure you are mentoring some people as well. So it's amazing how those lessons that one person teaches can just trickle down. That's absolutely right. That's incredible. Dr. Chan, your, what's your mentorship look like um, over the years? I think like Laura, I don't really have a, you know official or set mentor, mm-hmm. um, but I do want to credit my last boss with helping me to maximize my leadership potential and to communicate effectively. So in addition to taking professional development courses, she helped me find an executive coach to help me gain self-awareness, develop goals, and how to achieve them. But like Laura, I try to spend time with people that I want to learn from and to observe them. And so I try to absorb their knowledge and their experiences and kind of weave them into what I see as my own. Um, And I'm still young, and I'm still learning and evolving my own leadership style, particularly as I move from the academic community now to uh, the civilian sector. Uh Um, So that's kind of still evolving, so I'm still learning all the time. Okay, great. Well, I'm sure you will find some really amazing people over at DISA for mentors, and then I'm sure you'll be a wonderful mentor yourself because doing the work that you do, I'm sure there's a lot of young women looking up to you right now as well. Right. So I recognize in my position that I now can serve as a mentor to others and also as a role model, uh, particularly to the young workforce and also to women and also to the Asian American demographic as well. I know this next question is going to sound a little cheesy, if you will, uh, but it always fascinates me. If you could look back and if you could give yourself one piece of advice when you started your leadership journey... Like, what's that one piece of advice you wish you had when you started it all, when you joined the Navy, when you said, sure, I'll join the Air Force, when you decided I'm going to start this path in academia? Well, there's a phrase in Hawaii, and I spent a lot of time you know, stationed in Hawaii, and there's a phrase in Hawaiian that's kuli'i kanu'u, which means strive for the summit. And that really resonated with me because when I was young, I, I thought it was all about the summit. And I saw that phrase and I realized it's really about striving. You set your summits of what you want to do and where you want to go, but it's the journey. It's, it's what you learn on that path that really is powerful and makes you into the person that you want to be and the leader that you want to be and allows you to serve. So, um, so that's the, the advice that I would have given myself from the beginning is think about everything that you're doing about the strive, not the summit. So when I was growing up, I was a, um, a poor little girl. So in, you know, not a lot of money. Um, and, um, I always felt that very strongly, um, you know, maybe a little bit ashamed. Um, and 
I always felt that I needed to, uh, when the Admiral says strive, I needed to strive to be recognized, and uh, whether it be academically or with good behavior or whatever that might be. Um, and what I wish I knew when I was younger is that I could just be myself. You know, what I should have told myself is just be yourself, you know. You can't be anyone else. Just be yourself. Um, well, I grew up like uh, Laura and because um, my family immigrated here. Um, so, but we were taught to study hard, work hard, and you can go far, uh, basically. But, and I always grew up liking to solve challenges and puzzles, and it is about um, just that journey not necessarily the end game, because once you were done, once you reached that goal, there was always another challenge to solve or another puzzle. But in terms of uh, work, I think it's very important to find mentors and role models um, and develop a network of relationships that you can call on. So it's almost, uh, some of it would be supporting, supportive, um, but I really strongly believe in trying to find uh, advocates or sponsors, people who know you, who would speak well of you to others uh, when you're not around, and people who would also support you in getting credit for your work, um, help you build your network, and also advocate for you uh, to be offered new opportunities um, in work. And I think that's really important because looking at a lot of young women I see, they're very afraid to go up to those other leadership figures and ask for help or or ask for advice or for whatever reason it may be. Um, in some cases, I see that it's because when we're 20, we think we know everything, so we don't need the advice yet. Um, excuse me. I also see that sometimes it's intimidation, that we don't want to talk to those, those folks, that we don't want to talk to those professors that are educating us or those managers in our first jobs. And I think it's really important to build those mentors. And it's also important to know that you can have many mentors throughout right. your career and that they'll all serve different purposes possibly as well. But it behooves us now in our roles to recognize that there is that fear and to kind of try to encourage them to speak up because unless they speak up, we don't know what they're thinking and what, what kind of um, opportunities or... Uh, projects they would like to work on or where they want their life to take them. And if we're able to just impart some of our own experiences or knowledge, that might be helpful for them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what did it for me when I was very young in my career. I had a wonderful woman who was my boss, and she just took the time to come talk to me at my desk. And I mean, she was the one in charge of the whole station. And I was like, little me, why are you talking to me? But she did. And she was a wonderful woman. And she just imparted a lot of great wisdom on me, and I didn't know it at the time, but she was definitely one of my first mentors and who helped guide me um, to eventually where I am today. I think it's also important to recognize that mentors can be younger than you, right? So it Absolutely. may not necessarily be somebody who's older than you. It's just somebody who would be able to give you a different perspective. Absolutely, and I see a lot of that. I think I'm at kind of this prime age where I'm kind of between generations, and I think it's really incredible to obviously get advice and guidance from those who came before you, but those who are coming up behind us, they see the world a very different way than we did. They've experienced the world a very different way. They have, they're integrated into technologies and just society in a very different way than mm -hmm. we are. 
And you're 100% right. I'm so glad you brought that up because I've definitely learned a lot from my younger counterparts who I've come across with. And we definitely don't want to discount their incredible knowledge and the things that they're doing as well. Now, I agree with that. That's one of the reasons why we value the diversity that we have in our workforce at DISA because you know, whether it's a different background, it's a different age demographic, um, you know, it's a different cultural uh, background or different genders, it's really helpful to have that kind of mix of ideas. And that diversity, when you, when you have that diversity in a group of people, the solutions you come up with are so much more rich, you know, and you, you can just, you're, you're, you sit back and you're amazed by the, the answers we get and, and the creative thought that, you know, goes into any kind of project, you know, that it's not the same old answer anymore, you know, it's pretty amazing. And isn't it great when somebody just comes up with this innovative idea and then it just like, you just see all these light bulbs going off around the room and everybody starts participating. And then that's when you really get the work done. Kind of addressing the elephant in the room, men, I'm not calling men elephants, but <laughs> let's be honest that, that men have held a lot of the leadership roles over the years and that's slowly changing, uh, probably not fast enough, but it is changing. And what can, because I know a lot of amazing men out there who are not trying to hold women down, who want to help them advance, and who want to see them succeed. So what can our counterparts, our male counterparts, what can they do to help women succeed? What do you think they can do, Vice Admiral? Well, first of all, it's really important for them to take an active role not just assume that this is going to happen naturally, but but really consciously, intentionally uh, spend time with the women that are around them, whether those are their subordinates or peers or um, uh, elsewhere in their organizations or their families, of saying, what is it that I can do to help empower you, help you recognize the, the value that you bring and the potential that you have in really important roles that you might not even see yourself in today? And, and uh, women should seek out men for that, not be afraid of having those kinds of mentoring relationships and, and growth potential. And, um, and men should not be afraid of that either. I agree with that. I, I also believe men should really listen carefully to women and notice that women have at times a different communication style than men. Yes. You might see in a meeting that um, men will tend to talk um, and sometimes talk over each other and interrupt each other, while some women will not. They might wait. Um, notice the different communication styles, um, and, you know, I notice Admiral Norton does that. She'll she'll notice that I have a look on my face and say, <laughs> Laura <laughs> or Cos and and she'll call me out to say, What is it you have to say? because um, she knows I have something to say. So my point being, you know, notice that somebody might have something to say and yet they're not saying it yet because other people around the table are speaking over each other just to notice and listen to women and take time to hear what they might not be saying 
maybe you have to talk to them one-on-one. Maybe um, a different forum is necessary. I don't know. But, you know, you've got to take that time to communicate um, with women because they might have different communication style. I'm not saying all women are like that. You know, women are just like men in some ways. Everybody have uh, has different communication styles, but it, it may be that women have a different style. Well, people in general right. have different communication mm-hmm. styles. All of us sitting in this room could have very different communication styles. So I think that's a very valid point. And then just a reminder, too, for the leaders out there, to understand that. And if somebody's not speaking up, then maybe go to them a different direction because, as we've been discussing, we all have wonderful ideas and thoughts and things that need to be said. So I think that's a very, very valid point is to remind the leaders out there that if somebody's not speaking up, hit them from a different direction. Maybe, you know, grab that cup of coffee or just stop by their office and and ask them what, how things are going, and you'd be surprised at the amount of feedback you can get from that. Yeah. Sherry, one of the things that, it, that we need to be thinking about for diversity is having a diverse group in the room doesn't give you diverse thought. You have to actually be listening. They have to be talking. They have to be sharing their ideas. So if your diverse work group is not actually contributing, you have to, you have to facilitate that and make sure that you're getting those, the, the value of that diverse thought. Yes, that's a very good point, because if those ideas aren't getting out there, then it's just the same old, same old. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I love that. So, yes, engaging that diversity, not just having it present, but also engaging it as well. Um, I think that men should just uh, learn to treat women as equals and overcome their unconscious bias. Um, I don't need to be the one walking into the room and being... Um, generous or having good manager and offering coffee, I'm not the one who's going to be making the coffee for you. So that's, you know, instances that have happened in my career. Um, But men should, you know, create the opportunities for women to participate and to be heard and to provide their contributions to important decisions, right? And diversity will lead to better decision making. Um, But like the animal said, those thoughts have to be aired. When you said about the coffee, I just had to laugh. I have a story early. I, my original, my first career was in broadcast news, much like Miss Rodney. And uh, we had the general manager at the station coming through, and he looked at me and asked for some coffee. And I pointed to the coffee machine. <laughs> right. <laughs> I said, right there, I said, but I am, I am your, one of your producers, sir. So he didn't even really know who I was. And um, I have no problem actually making coffee for people. I just truly don't know how because I don't drink coffee. I don't drink <laughs> so, coffee either. So, so. yeah, so, so Me please, neither. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, there, there you go, sir. It's, I'm sure we can figure out one time um, I did try to make coffee for some of my fellow anchors, and I didn't realize that the water was already streaming into the coffee pot, so I poured more water into it, and it went all over the place. <laughs> and I was like, that's all it. I'm never making coffee again, and I didn't. And so then my GM... Um, he got the side effects of that when I said, well, there it is. You can, you can figure it out. <laughs> so now that we've talked about what men can do to support women, I think this is equally, if not more important. How can women support each other? What do we need to be doing and thinking about supporting other women in leadership? Um, I think we want to be supportive and encourage other women, but most likely treat other women the way we want to be treated. I think that helps a lot uh, because we understand the struggles of how to get to where we are. And if we're supportive of others trying to do that, we would have the best insight to doing that. Um, And 
of course, for me, I think advocacy is the biggest thing. I think if you're able yeah. to advocate for them to when an opportunity arises in the workplace or uh, giving them a stronger chance of being promoted, um, getting assigned to a coveted project, that would help. And that's hard because as women, we're kind of already competing against each other in society. So it's really important to think about that and allow somebody else to get a coveted project. Maybe you could do it yourself, but maybe give it to somebody else this time and advance those women leaders as well. Right. I think that's very important. It's very hard. It is. It's, I, I mean, it's hard for me. It's hard for me just, you know, thinking about, because I always get in that gear like, well, how do I advance myself? How do I get right. myself? I got to think about the women around me as right. well. So you have to uh, sort of create this community and a pact instead of just being the lone um, wolf out there trying to get ahead. I think what's really important about what you're saying is this is not a competition for the limited slots that are available for women in leadership. There's plenty of work to go around. We need to be supportive of all women leaders. Let's bond together, support each other, and put forward you know, each woman leader for each opportunity and support each other in that way. Don't make it a competition, you know. How can we help each other be successful at each turn, at each opportunity? That's the way we need to think about it. It is not a competition. Let's help each other be successful. One of my favorite sayings is one, one measure of a leader is the leader she creates. And so if you are always thinking about how can I develop and create another leader that can come behind me or exceed me in the future, then you are looking for how to develop women, how to give them opportunities, how to give them uh, the right kind of a boost that they need for confidence, giving them just just enough of, hey, I want to challenge you. I'm going to put you out on, on, on the edge, but not on a ledge where we're going to let you fail. Uh, always with with the shoring them up and uh, and making sure that they'll be successful in in what we're developing them to do. Wonderful. Well, thank you, ladies, for joining us today. It's certainly been an inspiration talking to each and one of you. Uh, you have all served as my flash mentors today, <laughs> as I have definitely taken something away from everything that you've had to say. And I know that the women and the men listening in our audience definitely could walk away with a lot of um, inspiration as well. So thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy days to be with us today. Uh, please continue the great leadership work that you're doing and uh, continuing to lead others. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you for thank you, us. Sherry. That's it for our Women's Leadership episode of Fort Meade Declassified. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, you can find episode one on iTunes now. And you can follow us on social media, download the Fort George G. Meade app from the App Store, and be sure to visit our website, home.army.mil forward slash mead for up-to-date information on COVID-19.